Thanks be to God for you, Beth Ann, for this scripture and for each one of you who is here now and today. I'm Hannah. I'm the pastor here. In case you come here a lot and you're nervous that we skipped testimony, it was on purpose. We're doing a thing later, so don't worry about it. I just like to ease those nerves if you're wondering. Um, but if you would pray with me, we're going to be doing some preaching first, some conversation together. So please pray with me if you would. God of grace and mercy, God of power and might, God who has called us your friend. Be with us in this moment and in this time, helping to guide our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies towards you. And if we should err, help us to return to you, knowing our belovedness, knowing our worth, knowing that we are loved and liked and wanted by you, and helping us to live like it's true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My best friend in the whole world, my best friend is a woman named Kate. Uh, Kate and I have known each other since we were 11 years old. We were on the swim team together, is how we first got thrown together. Um, we spent every day on the side of the pool talking about one another's strokes and how fast we were going to go at the meet on Saturday. And then it became jokes about the things that we were doing together. And then it became jokes of the nonsensical kind that only 11-year-olds can make. And then it had been so long that we couldn't imagine life without each other. And then we had a very serious conversation when we were 12 years old with our other former best friends about how we loved them, but we had a new best friend, which is not required, but is a thing that 12-year-olds do. Um, and Kate and I have been through a lot. We have been through some real knockdown, drag-out fights. Uh, we have been through really painful experiences of grief and loss and terror. <laughs> We have been through some very bad boyfriends. <laughs> um, we have been through all of the good and all of the bad and all of the complicated. I think about her when I think about friendship, um, not just because she's such a good friend to me, but because the relationship we have really affirms a lot of what I've read about friendship in preparing for us to think about it as this spiritual practice. Studies on friendship, of course, are not perfect, but uh, the University of Kansas did one recently on how long it takes to make a friend. And uh, what they said was to move from acquaintance to kind of baseline friend is about 50 hours, 50 hours of time together. To move from baseline friend to like good friend is an additional 40, so you have 90. To move to calling someone your close friend, someone with whom you experience intimacy and trust, 200 hours of time. 200 hours of just time together. And that is what I have experienced with Kate. There's a lot that's different about us. Uh, our careers and our political parties and our attitudes towards things. Um, there's a lot that's the same. She basically has the same hair as me. People always ask us if we're sisters when we're out and about. But there's a lot that's different about us. And yet, having spent those 200 hours and then another 200 hours and then another 200 hours has made us inseparable. One of the things I thought was most interesting as I was reading all these studies about friendship is that those 200 hours, once you have put them in, they never go away. 
One of the things that people find about friendship is that it is like the idiom says riding a bike is, even though I have actually not found that to be true of riding a bike. Once you've done it, it will come back. People find reconnecting with friendships that have fallen apart or fallen to the wayside or just become quiet almost universally incredibly fulfilling. Once you've put in the time, it can't go away. When you see a friend who you've put that time in with, the intimacy and the trust come back. Um, and I think this is important to remember because we are in a moment in history. We are in a time when a lot of people are finding friendship really, really challenging, really, really hard, particularly when you're an adult. Kate and I are as close as ever. We talk all the time. Our kids FaceTime each other. Um, we have a deep, deep love, but we live in different states, which is now pretty typical for most people, that the people you grew up with or the people you went to school with or the people who you have been the tightest with over time, the people who you have that 200 hours with, do not live next to you, and they do not live on your street. And it turns out that you don't just need those friendships that are close emotionally. You need friendships that are close like close, physically, people who you can rely on in the every day, in the every week, in the every month. And most of us, our lives are now so mobile, even just within the same city. I would imagine many of you have lived in several different Chicago neighborhoods. You're not on the same street you grew up in. Many of us feel um, a lack of these kinds of deeply close ties. In studies of social networks, People have different sizes of social networks raising, ranging seriously from like 50 people to like 22,000. But most people, this is true of extroverts, introverts, people with social skills, people without, have only 10 to 20 who they really say they trust, and then only one to three who they say are their confidant, who they could tell anything to. And that has changed over time. In the 1980s, when they looked at how many confidants people had, the average across people in the United States was three. That average is now only two. We've all lost a person. We've all lost a person. And in part, I think, because we're losing time, we're becoming a society where people work too much and have to work too many jobs, and so making those 200 hours with people is harder. We're a society that is moving away from institutional life for many good reasons, like a lot of people have found certain forms of institutional life really constraining, really um, debilitating, really traumatic, but that means we have fewer places where we're put in touch with people. You can't meet all your friends at work, especially those of you who are teachers or social worker, right? This is a real struggle. You like literally aren't allowed or it would be inappropriate or weird or not fun to make friends with people at work. Um, but it's true for everybody that that can't be the only place you form friendships. And very few of us anymore have a bowling league on Sunday night where we might meet new people or a knitting group on Wednesday night where we might meet new people. Um, we just have the people that we've had. And so these friendships and these, these confidants and these people that we have trust with and that we need when times get hard are becoming fewer and fewer, and it's really wearing on us. It's really wearing on us. Every survey, every study says people are lonely. <laughs> people want more of this intimacy and this connection, and we need it. It's something that makes us who we are. Some of you may have wondered, why are we talking about friendship in church, right? Friendship is good and friendship is important, but what does it have to do with our spiritual lives? And I hope, if nothing else, these scriptures show you that friendship has always been a theme of the spiritual life. 
from the Proverbs that were written so many thousands of years ago that told us how to be a friend, right? Disclose things to people. Don't let fights get in your way. Move through it. To Jesus, who said, although a friendship with Jesus is different from our everyday friendships, um, you are not simply my servants. You are my friends because I tell you the truth, because I confide in you, because I tell you everything. And Jesus' friends weren't even that good at hearing it, right? When Jesus tells them everything, I am going to die, here is going to be my life, their first response is like, oh, no, Jesus, that's a little too deep. That's a little too scary. That's a little too sad. But they stick around, and they're there, and that makes them Jesus' friends. Friendship is an important emotional experience that's critical to our psychological health, but it's also an important spiritual practice without which most of us feel bereft in our relationship with God. All month, we're going to be talking about friendship, and we're going to be talking about how to make friends, how to retain friends, how to invest in friendship through some of the great friendships of the Bible. But today, we really want to drill down on what is friendship in the first place? What are we talking about? What makes it different from other stuff? And the way we're going to do that is through a book some of you may have experienced before, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves where he delineates four different ways that we experience love in the world. And the differences between those and the importance of having some taste, some flavor, some intention of all of those kinds of love. He called those four loves agape, which is godly love, a full love that applies to everyone and is beyond all things. Agape is sort of the the big love, universal love, through everything love. And then storgi, which means affection. He took this from Greek and from some uh, Greek conceptions of love and friendship, but I think that they're, they're, they're everywhere. And even though the word affection doesn't necessarily suggest this to us today, for, the, for him that meant like family love, that is unconditional, that's kind of there from birth, that's kind of obligatory, <laughs> that you can't get out of it. It's that kind of love. And then he named eros, which is uh, romantic or sexual love. Intimate love that yearns, that draws us closer together, that involves wanting. And the fourth was philia, friendship love. So we're going to go through all four of those and talk a little bit about the differences, but about how each one of them reflects us back to God, brings us back to God, brings us back to our best selves and who we want to be but also why one can't substitute for the other. One can't substitute for the other. I think a, an additional barrier to friendship for many of us in the modern world is that we've put all of this pressure on the nuclear family as the only source of love and emotional intimacy in our lives. <laughs> and A, that doesn't work because a lot of people, your uh, sexual orientation or your luck at dating or your whatever has not put you in a nuclear family. Like, it just hasn't happened for you, um, and yet the whole world is telling you that's the only way for you to experience love. And if you aren't dating or if you haven't found someone to marry, uh, stories about what love looks like for you are too far in between. They're just not frequent enough. But it also isn't enough because it isn't enough. Right. Most of us need our families and other stuff, too. It's actually a burden on our partners or on our children if we expect all of our love needs to be met by them. If we expect them to be stand-ins for God, for our conception of what love is, it's not good for us and it's not good for them. Most of us need other things. 
we're going to talk about each of these slices of love, what they offer to us. Um, but before we do, I want to play for you uh, a clip I heard recently that I, is another conception of all of the different flavors of love and how they come together. It's from, if any of you haven't heard it yet, a fantastic album, Everything is Love, Beyonce and Jay-Z's album that they did together, um, sort of the finale to the three-part series on what happens when things go wrong in a marriage and in a nuclear family. Um, but now they're like, back, right? And it's, it's going good. Um, and there's a song called Black Effect that has uh, an unidentified woman at the very beginning speaking. And so we're going to play it for you. Yeah, I'm going to sing it for you. No. unconditional giving of self to another person. And there's love of humanity. That's the love that is right now needed most, love of humanity. But in everything, in all of that love, there is a soul. It's like when you take some eggs and break them, and you, and you take the shape between the shells, and mix them up, trying to find the one that matches. So it's not just C.S. Lewis with this insight, right? She talks about love of self, love of children, um, love of the other, and then love of humanity. And what I really love about the way she puts it, an insight that I think Lewis uh, didn't have in his original work, is that all of these things are really important for their particularity. It's really important that learning to love yourself is a different process than learning to love and comfort others, but that you need both but that what they all come down to in the end is love of humanity and we all need more of that. What they all come down to is a kind of universality and intensity of love. Any love healthily acted out in its specificity can contribute to the most general form of love acted out in its godliness. That's what I think. And that's why we need to practice all of the kinds of love. Um, some of the ones that Lewis left out, I would call that particularly love of self, Lewis didn't talk about, but that's a really important one. Many of these other kinds of love you're not going to get unless you learn to love yourself. And also what the song Black Effect ends up being about, I'd recommend you all listen to it, which is love of one's people and love of the oppressed. The song ends up about being um, Beyonce and Jay-Z's love of their blackness and of black people and of their community that the world has refused to love, how powerful it is when they choose to love people who the world will not love. And so those are two things I just want us to keep in the back of our heads, those other kinds of love, love of self and love of um, the parts of ourself that the world will not love, the parts of our community that the world will not love, as other practices for knowing the fullness of what love is. But we're going to start where Lewis starts with agape. I'm going to bring back agape love. Agape to me is what the song called Love of Humanity, but with an added God dimension, it is the most central, critical form of love towards which all of the other specific loves build. It is love the way God loves, the way God loves the world, which is total, which is unbreakable, which is through all things. God comes to agape love naturally. God loves us already in creating us, in knowing us, in being 
God is agape love, and nothing can stop that love from making itself known. It's harder for us to experience and to offer agape love. We are not created it as human beings. It is not something that we find just coming and flowing out of us with no effort. For most of us, there are barriers between us and receiving the agape love that we have been offered and putting out agape love towards others. We think of love as very conditional. God might not really love me that way because I'm really gross and terrible for X, Y, and Z reasons. I can't really love other people that way because I will run out of love. I will run out of energy. I will run out of feeling. I don't have any more. These are the kinds of models of scarcity of love that we tend to be running around with in our own life that keep us from knowing the truth of agape love, even if we know in our heads that we think it's true. Living it with our bodies and hearts is harder. So agape love is what it all comes down to. But as with so many things, when God wants to teach us something about who God is, about who we are, incarnation is necessary. The big thing has to be known in concrete, bodily, everyday things that we go through. This is why God makes God's self known through Jesus, right? Through like taking a body, living a life, doing the thing. Jesus knows what it is to feel hungry and insecure and to live a bodily life and to have to make friendship and to have to make family. So for us, it's in our incarnated forms of love, the kinds of love that are specific between us and another person in the bodies that we have, in the life that we have. It's through that specificity that we're going to know big agape love. And so those three kinds of specific love. The first is uh, storgi. I am not a Greek scholar, but... Uh, so this is the family love that, that Lewis called affection. And this bond he called the most natural and biological because he felt like it was sort of non-negotiable and automatic. I think some of us have had experiences that show us that families are not actually automatically full of love and affection. <laughs> um, there are families that harm us, and there are families that... Uh, don't see us, or that once we become who we are, abandon us, or can't take us, um, can't fully accept us. But in its ideal, this kind of love is the kind of love that is unconditional, lifelong, not based on who you are or what you do, but just based on the fact that you exist. God calls God's self a number of things throughout the scriptures, and one of them is mother. God refers to God's self as a mother in several pieces of scripture, and whenever God does that, it's often in the context of, like, comfort or protection. I am a mother eagle who will not let her babies be hurt. I am a nursing mother who will never let her babies go hungry. When God talks to us about this kind of affectionate family love, God is talking about a there-for-you-ness, a comfortness that can never, ever be taken away. Some of us didn't experience that from our moms or our dads or our siblings, but it's something that we all deserve in our life. And, and many of us do create that over time. Many of you may have experienced friendships that feel more like this. The friendship goes on for so long or becomes something that feels more like family. It feels like something that is... Uh, 
non-optional. You can't get out of it, and you'll never get out of it, and they're always there for you, and you're always there for them. And that is really, really important to have in your life. And if you don't have it in your life, I do think church is one major way where we build those kinds of relationships, these kinds of deep, long-term, unconditional love relationships. We need them in people to know that they're true of God. God's unconditional love is always there, but it's not actually enough for you to be convinced of it. You need to feel it from another human being to know what it really is. I think. Sometimes in our life, we're left with only God to unconditionally love us. We are so betrayed and hurt by others. We have to take trust in God's unconditional love, and we can do that. But I think we understand it best when we are also experiencing it from actual human beings, like a physical people in our lives, and offering it to them. So when a friend becomes that, that's beautiful. But then it means we still need some people who are in the friend category, not the friend is family category. So to me, this kind of love is about um, need. I need it, and people need me. It's the experience of need in love. Let's go to Eros. So Eros is how Lewis talked about sexual, romantic, intimate, like partnered love. Um, and for him, the options in that space were much reduced from what the options are for us today. But he still had a lot of really interesting things to say about it. Um, and one thing that I want to be clear on is not what I said earlier. Not everybody in this room, if you do experience sexual and romantic desire, is going to experience that in the context of a partnership or a relationship. Sometimes we're single, and sometimes we're single for a really long time. <laughs> sometimes we don't find that person. Um, and we have folks in our community who are asexual or aromantic. They genuinely don't experience this need that many other humans experience for sexual intimate relationship or romantic relationship. But I still think there's a piece of Eros love that all of us are craving and all of us are looking for and that's really important, which I would say as the experience of being wanted in the particular is really important to Eros. The experience of, of desire and the experience of wanting to create. Something that I think is very, very strange about children's movies and children's books is that they revolve around relationships in a way that is not at all relevant to the lives of actual children. <laughs> you know, like they don't want boyfriends or girlfriends. They're not looking to be in a lifelong heterosexual partnership. We're just training them. This is the only thing you can care about ever. Um, <laughs> And so kids are often confused, right, when they're watching these princess movies where it's like, I want to get the guy. And they're like, I don't understand what that means. I don't experience that in my life. Um, but one of the ways that I've tried to explain that to my daughter when she sort of asks me, like, this will often come up when I'm listening to a song, and a lot of songs are about love. And she'll say, uh, what does she mean he left her alone and she's so sad? And I'll say, oh, well, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends. And one of the things I explain is when you grow up, you might someday feel a way towards somebody where you want to make a new family with them. That's how I've chosen to explain that to her because she doesn't have those feelings yet, is to say, you have your family that you're born with, and then sometimes you meet someone who you want to make something new with. And that might not be children. It might not be a family unit in the legal sense of the word, but I think that the eros part of us is the part of us that wants to create new things, that wants to join God in a sense of creation and newness and boldness. And everyone has that sort of erotic love part of them, even if they're asexual or aromantic, that desire to create 
and to join new things and to bring new people into the community, into the family. And it's a particular and an important kind of love. But it also is very exclusive and demands a certain amount of work on the part of everyone involved. I love my best friend so deeply. You may have heard that at the beginning, right? Like we just have, we've shared everything. We love each other. I have a very difficult time imagining being married to her because our visions of what a good life like looks like are different in some ways. <laughs> we could not actually create one life together because it wouldn't satisfy both of us. I mean, there's the fact that we're not attracted to each other, which is like a whole other right issue, but we, we don't have the same desires for what a life looks like. And one of the benefits of friendship is that you don't have to have that sense of exclusivity and you don't have to have a shared sense of what a good life is or what your life should look like. You don't have to have a shared sense of what your home should be like or how your family's gonna work or what your values are. You don't have to share any of that to have a great friendship. Friendship can draw us into relationships of difference that don't require all of that other stuff. So if Storgi teaches us about being needed and Eros teaches us about being wanted and yearned for and creating, what does philia teach us? Because we're back at friendship now. We're back at the, the real um, core of the day, the core of the month. Philia, friendship love. I think friendship teaches us a lot of things. Friendship teaches us about getting through difference. Those 200 hours are not 200 hours of sharing all your interests. You gotta vibe with someone to be a friend, but you don't have to be identical to them. And friendship is most often the area of our life where we find ourselves the most elevated and challenged by human difference that we can be friends with people who aren't like us. But I also think that philia is about the love we often forget, which is the love of being liked, of being liked. <laughs> In unconditional family love, you learn about need. In eros, uh, kind of jealous, exclusive love, this is God often refers to God's self as a husband in the Bible, a kind of eros love. And that's often about this like, um, jealousy. I have chosen you specifically. Don't go to other gods before me. <laughs> I have chosen you for who you are. Don't, don't mess around on me. There's this sense of want, of desire. Um, God also talks about God's self as a partner in the context of promises that can be kept. But philia and friendship is about being liked. Someone likes to spend time with me. Someone voluntarily chooses to be down with me for years and years and years. They wanna hang out. And that sounds uh, trivial, but it's not. <laughs> Most of us are gonna have a hard time believing in agape love unless we also have that philia experience of somebody liking us and thinking that we're fun and thinking that it would be a good time to be with us, of somebody choosing not because they have to, or not because their yearning leads them to, but because they want to, to spend time with the whole person that we are. And in philia, we can also offer that feeling to others of appreciating them without sex or family being a part of the equation, <laughs> of appreciating who they are, of liking who they are, of wanting to be around them. Philia and friendship, Lewis thought, were a lost art in modern society, in part because they, it takes so much time, but also because it takes a lot of shared experience and conversation that most people find threatening, or most people 
feel like won't really work. One of the things I'm interested in about friendship is that the thing that builds it most besides time, just actual time, is vulnerability. Anytime you're vulnerable with someone, it increases the relationship between you and that person. And I read a study that said self-disclosure makes people like you. Self-disclosure makes people like you more if you share with them something that you find hard. Most of us assume in every moment of our lives that it will be exactly the opposite. <laughs> that anytime we share something real about ourselves, all the walls are going to come crumbling down. We're going to be mocked. We're going to be hurt. We're going to be hated. They're finally going to figure out how dumb or uncool that we are. Um, and if we share anything real, we're done. And sometimes that's true, right? Like eighth grade happened to all of us. <laughs> but what's really true is that most of the time, when you disclose something about yourself in a healthy way, right? So. Um, People like you more. They want to be closer. <laughs> they experience that same loneliness and craving for intimacy that you experience. And when somebody trusts them enough to tell them something real, it makes them feel safe enough to offer something real. And it makes them feel like they're a trustworthy, likable person. And that's something that we all want to feel. And most of us aren't getting any of that philia in our lives. Or if we are, it's long distance. Or if we are, it's been too long. One of the things I love the most about this church is that I've seen the way this church community has built philia. A lot of our small groups, uh, they meet for a year or two years or three years, and then some of them meet forever. But most of them, even after that year, I see people, I'm on Facebook, right? I see those people continue to get brunch every week, to go out on Friday nights, to make inside jokes with one another, right? The, the friendship, the philia part lasts. And it's one of the only places in life where I see people cultivating it. In almost every other place, in other work environments that y'all are in, in our social environments, uh, people want friendship, they want philia, and they're not getting it. But in some of these small groups at church, I see people getting it, and so it makes me think, how can we invest more in that? How can we make that a thing that everybody could have, a thing that everybody could experience over time, where you continually feel like there's an opportunity for you to make new friends who really see you, who really hear you, and who really care, who really care. So that's what this month is about. Now that we've described friendship, this like, this kind of love that isn't going to be found or fulfilled in a partnership or a thruple or even, right? Like it's not going to be filled in love, love, sexual romantic love. It's not going to be filled in family, cousin, aunt, and uncle love. It's a separate kind of love without which we don't know the fullness of who God is because God doesn't just need us. God doesn't just care for us. God likes us. God is our friend. Jesus said that. You are my friend. I tell you the truth. I want you to tell me the truth. I want to call you on your stuff. I want you to call me on mine. How are we cultivating friendship in a way that is long-lasting and real and will carry us through the times when none of the love feels real or when all of the loves feel too hard? So this is where our little altered testimony time is going to come in. Instead of having one person testify, I'm going to encourage you, having heard about the power of vulnerability, having heard about the power of self-disclosure, to pair with one another and testify to one other person who you do not know. 
And if this will really, like, if your social anxiety is very high, high and this will actually torture you, don't feel pressure to do it, that's okay. Um, but I want you to try and challenge yourself to find one person in this room who you do not know and tell them something about how it is with your soul right now. Tell them something real. Tell them something, it can be good or it can be bad, but it has to be real. How is it going with you? What is happening inside of you? Don't push your boundaries so hard that you fall apart, right? We don't want a bunch of broken eggs, but like push them a little bit, push them a little bit. Try and tell somebody something that you might not have otherwise told them. Let them do the same to you and see if you feel a little hit of that philia that you can then take throughout the week to challenge yourself to more friendship. All right? And we're going to...